Well, this is, this is it, folks. She needs to deal with the cost of living crisis. She needs to deal with the fact the NHS is on its knees and she needs to deal with the collapse of law and order. I know that we will deliver, we will deliver, we will deliver. For a long time, we told ourselves that American democracy is guaranteed, but it's not. He's an enemy of the state. You want to know the truth? Putin's goal is to undermine and destroy democracy. Hello and welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. Now, every other politics podcast this week is going to be talking about just one thing, Alan, aren't they? That's right. It's a time of big change in the world of politics. <laughs> New faces and old faces moving around. That's what everyone's going to be thinking about. And of course, I don't mean the appointment of Elizabeth Truss as Prime Minister of the UK. I mean the retirement of our esteemed and long-respected colleague, Professor John Street. Absolutely, because at UEA we like to do things differently. So instead of guessing what the new government is going to be doing and what it's going to be like, uh, this month we're going to be looking back at 42 years of teaching and studying politics with Professor John Street and also uh, Pierre Bouquillon, whose idea this was. Um, and John, I want to ask you, first of all, you've when you came here to UEA... Uh, Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister. So how has politics changed, in your opinion, over these last 42 years? It's a frighteningly long time. Yeah, I mean, she'd only been elected the previous year, so it, 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 her impact was being felt uh, at, that, at that point when I arrived. And, of course, what, one of the things that people who study politics were talking about was that this represented what might, was known as the, the, uh, the era where ideology was back. People, there had been this sense of almost complacency that somehow ideology was no longer relevant to politics. But with Thatcher, that was blown apart. And you realise that politics was a, a very ideological practice. And of course, this was great for teaching politics because students suddenly found themselves divided by the way in which Margaret Thatcher divided the country. And that provided a great basis for teaching. And of course, you know, that, that marked, I think, a continuation in politics of the, the presence of ideology, and it's, and, and, which had never really gone away. Just people were claiming that it had and uh, you know politics since then has been radically transformed i think and you know the rise of social movements in particular i think have made the significant difference to how ponder politics is conducted but also how we study it and teach it do you think we understand it more now 42 years on than we did then or has it become even more confusing no i think it's got it has got more confusing but in partly but as you do when you try and teach, you try and confuse students at a higher level. And, and it seems to me that that's what we're, we're, we have incorporated more and more elements into our account of what politics involves. I mean, you know, in particular, my interest in, in the, the role that culture plays, the role the media plays, those things weren't, I think, treated with the same kind of uh, seriousness as they are now in terms of how you uh, understand politics. But also, of course, the changing global situations have, have, and, the, and the role that they play in domestic politics seems to me something that people now take much more seriously. And the integration of politics and international relations is an, a, is an important development in the way in which we understand the political world. But no, I mean, our capacity to predict political events <laughs> seems to me as rubbish as it ever was. You know, it just seems to me nobody ever gets it right. You know, you, you poll political scientists on the outcome of an election and they're guaranteed to get it, get it wrong. Yeah. But what do you think 42 years ago, fresh new lecturer you would have said if, if you'd been told that on your retirement it would be uh, we would be seeing the 
appointment of a of a new woman Conservative Prime Minister as we're heading into a winter looking likely to be marked by strikes, <laughs> economic <laughs> difficulties <laughs> and a crisis yeah. over fuel and energy. <laughs> yeah, I said I've been asleep for the last 42 years. And I, no, I, but I th- and, and also what you would have said, you would have said that the Labour Party would have had a, a, a woman leader. Uh, and, you know, and that hasn't happened and, and doesn't look like to happen in the immediate future. Those some things you just would have assumed would have happened have not happened. But yeah, the the way in which politics is being conducted and the ways in which the ideas of leadership have changed and the kind of people who become leaders that's changed significantly. I mean, it seems to me, although that just doesn't mark a, a a complete break, but it's that earlier generation of political leaders seem to have a very different character than the ones we currently mm. uh, have. Throughout your career, you have made a distinguished contribution to the study of, of uh, media and politics in particular and political communications. Mm-hmm. And how, how has that changed also since, uh, since the days yeah. of Thatcher to today? I imagine that's changed a lot. Students always emphasize the role of social media in yeah. classrooms and so on. So Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I mean, if you looked at political textbooks at the time in which I was starting teaching, there would, there would be hardly any mention of media. It was only very slowly that you saw in the late 80s and then 90s that textbooks on British politics would have a chapter on mass media. But of course, you know, the thing about Margaret Thatcher was she was, in many senses, an innovator in the use of Saatchi and Saatchi as an advertising agency to come up with, you know, those telling adverts that really captured their message. And and the use of media advisors were most, I mean, there had been advisors before and advertising before, but it was becoming a much more uh, professionalised part Mm. of the political process. And... For me, someone who'd always had this sort of interest in the media and how it operated, I th- it, this was a great opportunity to explore further how media was playing its politics. And of course, as time's gone on, I mean, I think we've almost reached a stage where we're exaggerating the importance mm. of media to the way politics is being conducted. But of course, with social media and the thing, you know, it, it is it, it is transforming the political mm. process and political communication. Uh, and political science is now, I think, well, well adapted to that reality. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, it, it's still there are lots of questions out there about the influence of these, that this media is having, which mm-hmm. is sometimes exaggerated and often, I think, is too focused on what the electorate think and how it's influenced by media and less on how policy and political leaders are being influenced by media, which I think is as important as claims mm-hmm. about what the electorate is responding to in the media content it consumes. So. Um, Lots of people, of course, think that academics, we live in our ivory towers surrounded by dusty books, don't know anything about the real world and so forth. But that's that's definitely not true in your case, right? Because one of the things you've done in the, in the field is push the boundaries of what we study in yeah. politics, particularly because of your interests in popular culture and especially popular music. You wrote Rebel Rock in what year is that? 1986. So pushing the boundaries of politics in terms of looking at music, particularly something you've done. How did that start? How did you end up becoming the professor of pop and <laughs> politics. Um, yeah, I, well, in one t- yeah, uh, there were two things I wanted to do when I was young. One was to be a scientist, and, and I went to Warwick to study science originally, and within a year they pretty much made it clear to me that wasn't going to be a career <laughs> I was likely to follow. So I moved into politics. And the other thing I'd wanted to do when I was, uh, uh, which is terribly sad now I think about it, 
uh, when I was young was I wanted to be a music journalist. I didn't want to be a musician. I wanted to be a bloody music journalist. And you're thinking, well, that's not really the most romantic or, 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 or ambitious of, of, of plans. But anyway, that's what I wanted to do. And so when I, you know, I used to write about music and I, and, and what I, th I mean, thinking about my career and what I've done is that I think music influenced me profoundly in, in thinking about politics uh, and politics influenced the way I thought about music. You know, because I grew up, you know, listening to music in the 1960s. Not, it wasn't punk that made a difference to me. It was the 60s and John Lennon and, and the kind of movements that were organized around music in that time made me think, you know, this, it is doing, it is making a significant contribution to, uh, to politics and politics is informing and music. And so I've, I think I've drawn on my love of music quite significantly in thinking about how people lead and how they communicate in politics and so forth. And I have, you know, been able to indulge this, and I, you know, became almost a, 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 a music journalist of a kind for a little while after Rebel Rock was published, which I, I published because I got so bored with my PhD, which was the dullest thing you ever wrote or would have read. And I so I wrote this book on music, and then and I got invited then to write for a journal called New Socialist, and then later, uh, through nepotism, I got a, a I got to do freelance work for the Times, reviewing gigs around here in. In Norwich and uh, and slightly further, away, I I got to Birmingham to see Diana Ross. That was a, a <laughs> small highlight in <laughs> an otherwise un undistinguished music journalist career. I was one of those people who saw Robbie Williams's uh, first uh, solo gig, in which he performed a song called Angels, which many of you may know, but I, which I think I dismissed as being a rather weak and ordinary ballad. And <laughs> which, you know, again, my capacity to predict politics and music is equally incompetent, it seems to me. But did, did you, that sounds really cool though. <laughs> I mean, you were going to gigs, you were reviewing them, you, yeah. were, you, were, you were getting what, a press pass and getting them to the front and meeting people or were you very much staying at the back and just no, thinking about yeah, it cerebrally? I, and... They didn't ever let me interview anyone. Or the, I mean, I did, I did, I once, I got a, a sort of half page spread on a, an academic conference on music, which I, you know, which was a strange thing to read now or thinking about it. But no, I was, I was definitely the, the man at the back with, a, with his notepad while everyone else was enjoying the gig <laughs> writing <laughs> phrases that I thought I might use because you had to write them overnight. It was always a bit of a stretch trying to come up with something original to say. But well, what, yeah, was, yeah. what was the best? I mean, are you, are you one of the uh, the several thousand people in Norwich who managed to see Nirvana in a venue that fits about 300 people? <laughs> no, I'm not one of those. I'm one of the people who saw Oasis uh, at, at the Norwich Arts Centre, which is a pretty, for those who don't know it, a small venue. And uh, inevitably, the Gallagher brothers fell out with each other uh, and stormed off stage you know, halfway through the set. The best people I saw, I was PJ Harvey. And uh, and salt and pepper, which is, will mean nothing to most people. I remember salt and pepper. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> they were brilliant. Why were they so good? Oh, just it was just the, the the sheer joy of their show and they kind of the way the way they rap with each other and the kind of the, the tunes. It was it was just it was fun. Whereas P J Harvey was just incredibly intense, but it was completely gripping. Is this something that has informed your teaching over the years? Have you taught uh, music, politics, and yeah, I mean, these kind of topics? One of the one of the, one of the pleasures of teaching at UEA was and has been uh, the, the the opportunities you're given to teach around areas that interest you. And I mean, I moved gently towards teaching music or, or popular culture, having done teaching mm. politics and media, and prior to that, politics and technology. Um, I and and so. 
you know, it became more and more apparent to me that actually students were obviously interested in the way in which culture in various forms informed politics and, and gave expression to politics. And it was a it was something that I'd always been interested in too. So it was a, it was nice to be able to do that. Although what, what you learnt from teaching it is that although students are very happy to talk about politics, they were always slightly reluctant to talk about why they liked any particular piece of music or a film or something like that. They, they were much more cagey. And somehow it was to to break the mystery or or, 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 or of of the of their cultural experiences if they were forced, as I was trying to force mm. them, to talk about well, so why do you like that track or what is this film actually? doing that but it was it was good and I think you know I think it it, it was obviously something that some, some of my colleagues thought was less than serious but it, it did seem to me that it actually did uh, uh, lead to in understandings of what was going on when people were communicating about politics and and there was there were things to learn about politics by looking at popular culture and, and that I hope uh, it's now uh, this core, this module is now in the uh, very uh, capable hands of Alan himself, so we'll see. Uh, it, it will have a proper seriousness from now on. Uh, I should say. I think people are going to be very disappointed when they turn up and it's not you <laughs> in the lecture so. theatre. But that's interesting that you've that you found that was a way to to connect with students, at least in part, about politics, even mm. if they were not so clear about their own mm. tastes and so mm. forth. I mean, how was it over over that? Something I worry about is that you know when I go and if I'm going to go and teach pop music, I immediately start thinking of things from well from the time that you started teaching from, from, from the 1980s i mean yeah. how you know has it meant that you, do you feel you've kept up with youth culture as it were or has it become more distant and strange or maybe that's productive in the classroom well, i suppose these are things i can confess now but i one of the things i used to teach was an article that was arguing that international relations had failed to take seriously the issue of gendered power and the argument of the authors who were specialists in international relations was actually if you watch Game of Thrones you'll learn a lot more about gendered power than you would ever learn from studying a uh, IR textbook and that actually we should use things like Game of Thrones to understand uh, you know real world activities and I and I'd never made any secret of the fact that I had never watched Game of Thrones and I had no <laughs> real idea what it involved. It didn't seem to get in, in the way of my capacity to, te to mm. teach this particular stuff. And it was, I, one of the things I thought was my position as, in relation to this, as I became less and less you know, in touch with the kind of things that my, my students were in touch with, that I, we use this as an opportunity for them to talk to me about what it is that they like. I did tell them about TikTok. I remember saying to them, you know, this thing called TikTok is going to be really important. I was telling them this on the basis of a New York article, I may say, but anyway. And they looked at me as and said, no, that's the thing kids do. And now, of course, TikTok is one of the key mechanisms for political communication and a whole series of other forms of communication. Yeah. So maybe a bit more broadly, since you've got that experience of, of teaching politics mm. at university for so long, how, how has teaching just generally changed? It must be very different. Back in, in the 1980s, we had smaller yeah. classes. It was yeah. a whole different yeah. demographic coming. Now it's very different. How, how, how yeah, do you I mean, about that? I was thinking that was one of the things I've been thinking about is the UEA then was 3,400 students, mm. right? It's now 17,000, something like that. The... Um, there were 600 students in the whole, what was called then SOC, which is in which politics was based. And there were five of us in politics at that time. We had, of course, we had no email. We had no internet. We had no computers, you know, and it was a big deal when eventually a computer was, was allocated a space 
in in the school. It had its own room, and only certain people are allowed to use it in order to do word processing. Uh, you know, I mean, it was a totally different way. And you hold seminars in your own room, which you know, were not they're not big rooms, and and it's. It's true that, I mean, so seminar groups were obviously smaller. Students were different in the sense there were many more mature students than there are now, I think. That was one of the things I noticed. But they was, and they were, I mean, they were interested in politics as students still are. But it's a, it's a very different relationship. I think they were, those students back then were less cynical than students today are about the politics with which they, and there was very much more the sense that you can get things done. So, you know, the influence of, uh, of things like Greenham and so forth were very important to a lot of the students we taught in those days. Were they but, more politically committed? <clears throat> yeah, I think they were. I think that, that there was a sense, not, not necessarily party committed, although there were obviously those who, you know, particularly those who were active in the students' union and so forth. But there, there was definitely a sense that, you know, we were about the business of making change mm -hmm. in a way that I don't get quite the same sense of with current students and you you, you two will know much more about that than I. In it's way. interesting isn't it because I wonder what's led young people to feel so disempowered with mm. politics because like you say in the 70s and the 80s perhaps they felt like they were going to go mm. out and make the change whereas now when I speak to young people they feel really apathetic mm. I can't do anything about it. Do you, any sense of what of why that why that is? Well I, again I defer to the others here but I think I think there has been that sense in which you know the, the political system which is not well organized to represent the range of interests and opinions that exist in it, you know, via the electoral system and, and the ways in which parties have failed to deliver on promises that have made for all sorts of reasons, I mean, which have to do in the changing nature of global power and a, a lot of other things besides. It has led to a, a, an era of disillusionment. Very little is seen to change uh, and, and governments fail to provide the kind of... Uh, I mean, I think young people in particular have been screwed over by the system and, and uh, you know, their, their sense of disillusionment seems to be well placed. My generation is an incredibly privileged generation by comparison to, I mean, I'm speaking too about my colleagues in, 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 in uh, UEA. I think, uh, you know, I am part of a generation that has benefited extraordinarily from a whole set of changes that have been denied to the current generations. And do, the universities and the higher education has changed enormously since then with like uh, massification of higher education, uh, the way education is funded, mm -hmm. the introduction of fees mm -hmm. and so on. So mm -hmm. uh, do you think that it has changed the, uh, the type of students uh, we get, the type of kind yeah. of relationship that yeah. uh, educators have, have with yeah. students and, yeah. and, and so on? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean in the day in, when I was first teaching, we were we were. We were a school and it was an interdisciplinary school, but you know, we had a, a, someone who was part of our group, a secretary, or, and she kind of managed uh, our affairs and, and that was pretty much as far as management went. They had somebody to advise us. There was admissions people in the same building and same place. Everything was much closer to home. And, uh, you know, when students in <laughs> joined a module, they just put their name on the board, right? That was it, you know, and then there was a bit of rivalry as to how long your list was compared to your, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. But it was very much, you know, locally based and, and, and it operate, operated like that. And what we've seen over time is increasingly, um, you know, a, a managerial structured operating that insists, you know, that audits, audits everything and moderates everything and, obviously restricts the opportunity you have for innovation that we might have enjoyed back then. And of course, there were there were weaknesses with that system. I'm not saying it was in any way, in in any any way perfect. And of course, yes, the relationship with students has changed 
through the introduction of fees. I mean, in many sense, we've benefited from the introduction of fees in the sense that our department is a much larger department mm -hmm. than it was. You know, as I say, we were five and we didn't change. For, it was 1988. We had our sixth appointment made. Caroline Kennedy to do IR and we introduced our first MA and, and you know promotions you know we had a system whereby you only got promoted if in politics if economics had had it the year before and sociology the year before that and so on like it was it was and there was much less money around in that way and our ability to expand was not in our hands in a way that actually the student fee regime has helped but of course it's also introduced a, a different kind of relationship with our students mm. they are our customers and that necessarily changes the way in which we relate to them and they relate to us and I think detrimentally to a, to a large extent I think my relationship with students in those earlier eras was a much better one and you know we you you felt like a teacher rather than the service provider mm. and I think that is an important distinction. Can you say a bit more about that how does that change the classroom dynamic I mean is that do, is it maybe connected to the sense that students feel disconnected from politics is it mm. also because you know for them the classroom now is this thing they're paying for to get a qualification rather than this opportunity to be yeah. in a room and, and, and yeah. think through what one feels or thinks about politics, economic yeah. society. No, I think that I think it is right. And I, th I mean, you know, and, and it is their marks that matter to them. I mean, without doubt, in a way that I don't think it was ever, it ever had the same kind of significance in those earlier years. And of course, there was a much smaller students uh, cohort in those days. So getting a 2-1 or whatever, you know, what made a real difference whereas now you have to have that it's just a basic starting mm. point but it is a, there is that sense in which you your um your, you know your mark is is really important and but it is true though you, you know i think and you will find this too, uh, all of you find this true that students still appreciate the fact that you can have a conversation about something that isn't their mark and isn't their essay or the structure of the essay or when or or the deadline that you can talk about serious subjects in politics and and they remember it and they enjoy that and they don't say you know i'm so glad you gave me a 78 for that essay they, but they will remember you know we had those really interesting talks about you know game of thrones or whatever it was and mm. that seems to me that's still there Mm. But it is, it is still, uh, but it's being squeezed by these other imperatives which they work under and which we work under. Mm. Something else I want to ask about, well, maybe come back to as well, because, you know, you said that you started out with a kind of a, a scientific interest yeah. and background, mm. and then you moved into politics, but mm. you've been doing popular music and mm. cultural studies, but and back then politics was part of a mm. larger grouping along with mm. economics and philosophy and sociology and all these things, mm. and UEA was specifically meant to be a very interdisciplinary university mm. i'm guessing if you know if, if we did go back and speak to you in 1981 and said oh, by the time you retire it will be less interdisciplinary that would have surprised you maybe yeah. how has that changed and developed over time <clears throat> yeah that's absolutely true and, and it, the the people who were there then in particular there was a guy called martin hollis right who was a philosopher he had been in the civil service i can't remember in which which department he came to uea he had no qualification beyond the BA from Oxford, I think. And yet he was someone who took an absolute interest in what philosophers were doing, what economists were doing, what political scientists and sociologists do. He wrote with all of them. And he was, a, well, I've met many clever people. He's one of the most clever I met. And he was just brilliant at bringing people together. And he kind of embodied 
uh, that spirit that UEA did in, sought to engender in, in the correspondence about setting up politics. There's a lot of talk about interdisciplinarity and the point that politics was in a lots of different parts of the university, including within what was called SOC. And yeah, and, and the opportunity, and I, I've benefited tremendously from it. Over time, I've, looking back, I've written with a whole lot of people from different disciplines, and UEA was very good at that. And of course, the new structures in the, uh, that the university have introduced around schools and faculties has has made it difficult. It was always slightly difficult about, because it was about money and who had it and whether, how it was being allocated. But there was, there was opportunities for interdisciplinary. There was less pressure to publish I mean, under ref terms, which requires excellence in your particular discipline. It, it meant interdisciplinarity was always, has become slightly a more risky strategy in those terms. But it, it, it's not as easy, although I, you know, I've been blessed with the opportunity to write with some of the much cleverer people than me, and I've been so delighted by. And how, how things have changed us as as, uh, as, as lecturers? I'm a, a, a young, younger academic. Some would say early career. And and what we imagine in the past is like uh, basically a paradise for all white men would be kind of sitting, sitting and thinking and having a lot of time to do that and engage with students and colleagues. But that was kind of like a very small circle, mm. very elite. Mm. Uh, and so it's kind of like the image that we have a bit of, of academia mm. on the one end. It was mm. like, it was nice. You had more freedom. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, it was for, for very few people. Does it fit with your experience and uh, what the discipline was at the time and how it worked? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your, your impression in, in many senses, I, I mean, I mean, it wasn't paradise entirely because from the moment I arrived, we were already in a freeze for appointments and then there were cutbacks and so forth. And there were lots of the 1980s weren't great for higher education. But it's true that on a Friday afternoon, we, my colleagues and I would disappear to the snooker table, which was housed in the Sainsbury Centre <laughs> to play a game of snooker. <laughs> wow. A shame, a shame to say. And, and those colleagues, there were five of us, as I've mentioned before. And three of us were called John. You know, it was just, it was, <laughs> it, it was very male. And, and you look at the note and the information or the, the, the memos that went around about setting up politics. And I think it was the Dean of Dev says, well, when the politics man arrives, you know, it, there was no question that the, that, that, that was, there was a particular stereotype that was going to be, you know, expected. I mean, the one thing that, you know, we can perhaps be proud of at UEA, there was a point at which we had, you know, two female professors in politics. And that is something of a, of a rarity, Stephanie Lawson, Barbara Goodwin. And, and that was, a you know, there were moments when things got a bit better. But, you know, you're absolutely right. It's a profession that is in dire need of reform of all sorts in terms of who, who, who occupies it and what it, what it talks about. It does seem to me, I mean, thinking back about the things I've talked and studied, that you know, feminism and the cultural turn and so forth are absolutely crucial to being able to do the kind of things and, that we do and the interests we take in the way politics is communicated. John, you're about to retire and um, at the risk of embarrassing you, I'm going to ask you to give us some of your career highlights because you have, but I mean, you have shaped um, the way that we teach and research politics at UEA over 42 years. So, so, so come on, tell us what, what have you done that you've been most proud of over that time? <laughs> That's a terrible question, Claire. I mean... If, if you if you if you look at my <laughs> citations, my ancient all those sorts of things. I mean, I wrote a piece uh, back in two thousand five. It was I think, or four. I can't remember now. On celebrity politics, which is without doubt the thing that I get cited most frequently. I mean, I don't think anybody necessarily has read it, but they certainly can. Whenever they have to talk about celebrity politics, they they very kindly occasionally mention me. 
And then the book I wrote on media and politics, mm -hmm. that, that, that's probably the thing that... Um, I've used uh, it. I've used it in my class. Yeah, well, that, that has been now through three editions, and that, that obviously I, I, I'm quite proud of. I, uh, Pete Townsend wrote the blurb for Rebel Rock back in 1986. So I thought that was pretty cool. That, that <laughs> is very cool. That is very cool. <laughs> but that only happened because he was the brother-in-law of my editor. So it's not, <laughs> it's, it's not strictly that. But I think, uh, no, when I come down to it, the thing I'm most proud of is, is being able to teach. Uh, my parents said they, when they heard I was going into academic life, thought I'd be a complete disaster. And to begin with, I was. Um, and and had no idea, because I was shy and, you know, acting self-confidence, all sorts of things. And and yet, I, you know, I turned out to be able to do teaching, and I've, and I've loved every moment of that. Teaching has been an absolute joy. And I think the student loved it too, because I've often heard that John is a, is a cool cat from the <laughs> students. So. <laughs> I just want to ask one more thing although I'm, I'm going to add that you're being very modest about that article on celebrity and politics because that's 2005 and you're arguing that not just that celebrities exercise political influence mm. but that politicians get treated more like celebrities mm. 2005 and we've just seen a prime minister retire who came through mm. media celebrity we've seen mm. prime minister president of ukraine coming through a sitcom a whole range of things and, and donald trump of course coming mm. from tv you saw something happening mm. early that's on you're absolutely right about that but no so it may not be clear to listeners, but of course, P Pierre is the current head of head of politics, mm -hmm. and you've been a head of politics. So I'm just going to ask as a last thing: what's the what's the word of wisdom you dispense <laughs> from one head of department to the new head of department? Maybe a snooker table? It could be. There. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what is it going to be? Well, I, I I I think the thing you had to do most of is listen to your colleagues. It's it's. It's tough being an academic. It's not an easy life, and there's a lot of pressures on people. And actually, being able to spare time to your colleagues is really, really important. It seems to be the thing they appreciate. The thing I would always worry about was the budget, and it always turned out that the budget was the last thing I had to worry about. It was how people were coping with whatever it was they were faced with that really mattered. And whatever you could contribute to that seemed to be the most important thing you can do. I think that's advice that everybody in the university could take at um, any level. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. Thank you, John Street. And thank you on behalf of everybody at UEA for 42 years <laughs> of service. And we hope you enjoy a really restful retirement. Thank you as well, Pierre Bouquillon, for coming up with the idea for, thanks, for this session. Uh, also, thanks to the BBC for the news clips in our intros. Please share, like and subscribe wherever you get our podcasts. And we will be back next month, maybe talking about the Conservative Party. I'm not sure. Things change all the time. But until next time, goodbye.